the rest of you, would you join me in Romans chapter 9? Romans 9, as you do that, uh, I'm going to today be blending a few things from last week and a few things from about five weeks ago. And I'm going to start with some questions, all right? The questions are particularly for those of you that have been in church much of your life. Uh, The only problem with that, if you're getting my age or older, you may not remember the answers to these questions because our memory isn't so great. But really, if we knew the facts, uh, you probably would have multiple times in these questions. Here's my question. You ready? And don't answer out loud, just within your mind. Have you ever heard a sermon on John chapter 3? Anybody in here ever heard, don't answer out loud, anybody in here ever heard a sermon on John chapter 3? Like, what is John 3? Right, that's where God's loved the world. Jesus meets this man named Nicodemus who came to him by night, and he explains to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever heard a sermon on John chapter 3. Okay. Some of us are like, wow, I've heard many sermons. Have you ever heard a sermon on the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15? Remember that story? There's this prodigal. Most of us, if you've been in church very long, you're like, I've heard a number. And you're like, man, a revival, a youth emphasis, evangelism there, uh, working through a book, preacher was going through the parables, all these different things. Have you ever heard a sermon on Romans chapter 8, verse number 28, how all things work together for good? If you were here six weeks ago, the answer is yes. And you're probably thinking, I've heard Romans 8, 28 many, many times. So here's the next question. Have you ever heard... A message out of Proverbs 31 about the virtuous woman. Maybe Mother's Day. Challenging the women to be virtuous women. By the way, that's like an impossible text to live up to, but it's a great target to aim at. You ever heard that preached on? Probably like, yeah, I've heard of that. I've heard it in conferences. heard it in ladies' meetings. heard it in Sunday schools. heard it in sermons. Again, Mother's Day. Often it's probably the most popular Mother's Day passage. So my next question is this. Have you ever heard a sermon on Romans chapter 9? focused on verses 6 through 24 or any combination of that. Have you ever heard that in your life? And you may be saying, remind me what that's about. The fact that we're probably not real familiar with what that's about is the point I'm trying to make. I shared this five weeks ago. Often I find there are four types of Christians. Put yourself in this group. By the way, before I do that, let me say, I I alluded to this last week. This isn't to make me look good. Please understand that. It's not the goal. I just want to let you know why we do what we do. A lot of people who go book by book in their teaching and preaching, when they do Romans, I'm not making this up. This happens a lot. Probably as much in some denominations, this happens like probably almost all the time. In other denominations, they would feel fine. But this happens a lot. Preach and teach chapters 1 through 8. Skip, literally just skip 9, 10, and 11 because, wow, don't understand that. Or, wow, we don't need that brought up. Or, that doesn't really apply. That's not the main point. And some even do this. It's parenthetical. Okay. And then just skip over to chapter 12, 14, 15, 16. So 1 through 8, 12, 14, 15, 16, as though God made a mistake. Well, I don't want to do that. Why would we do that? God doesn't give us the right to do that. Oh, yeah, I preached through Romans. What would you do with 9, 10, 11? Oh, we skipped that. Then you didn't preach through Romans. Some, I believe, go the other extreme and say the main point of the whole book is Romans 9, 10, 11. I don't think it's the main point of the book. I'm on, I want to treat it as equally important. Not less, not more, equally important. But to my point, I find as we look at our topic today, many Christians fall in the following four categories. Put yourself in one of these. And be honest. Here's group number one. They don't read their Bible. They're Christian. They don't read their Bible. Or if they read, watch this, they literally don't engage their thinking. They're reading. They check it off. I read such and such. I read my Old Testament. read my New Testament. read my Psalms. I read through the Bible in one year. Or I read through the New Testament in one year. They're on that schedule. It's great to read, but watch. Some don't even read. Others read but are not engaged. And so they literally are ignorant. Totally ignorant. You say, Jeff, is it possible for a true Christian to live this life and never even engage this topic? Sure, if you go to a church that just does topical type preaching, never preaches through these topics, never preaches through these passages. You can totally miss it. Never even know, what's what's that? Ignorant on it. And I'm not meaning that as a name calling. 
It's a fact, just totally ignorant on the subject. Second kind of Christian, again, I alluded to these a few weeks ago. They do read, and they read with engaged thinking, and they come across this, and literally they do what I said some preachers do, like, I don't like that. And they just skip. Just, I don't want to deal with that. And they just skip it. Don't want to talk about it. Just move on. Third group, they read, they engage, they realize, boy, that's not being intellectually honest with the Scriptures. Can't skip it, but it's, this may be worse. I'm going to formulate my own ideas what this means. I'll just make my own. I'll just put my opinion in there. Because the other makes them uncomfortable. And then there's a fourth category that I want to be in. I hope you do as well. And that's those who read and study and engage. And they read with a mentality, we're going to just receive what God says. And whatever God says, that's what we're going to go with. Now, repeating from last week, I'm going to set the stage. We're going to read more of the text than usual today because of our topic. Uh, it's so controversial. And honestly, it's so emotional. Very emotional. It's been emotional for me. Some of you remember, I struggled with this. I still struggle with this. I'll give you my opinion. My opinion. There are things I'm going to say today I don't like. And I think I'm not the only one. I think Paul in verses 1, 2, and 3 tips his hand that he doesn't necessarily like everything that God shows him. I think that's where he's operating from. But he doesn't just like ignore or redefine. It's just that's not how I would do it. This is what God says. We've got to go with what God says. So again, setting the stage. What is 9, 10, and 11 all about? Paul is going to address the Jews and the dilemma concerning Israel. And if, that, if you hear that and say, that sounds boring, I kind of like the skip to chapter 12 and the application part. Tell us how to live in 2017 in America, Jeff. Please, just skip. You will be missing a major portion of Scripture that will affect theology in every area so here's some of the issues Paul's going to address again this is repeat from last week you've got to think here though you have to think so Jeff what's happening number one there's growing Jewish concerns because the church in Pentecost in Jerusalem started out with all Jews who became Christians but as the decades went along and by the time he writes here they're like 25 to 30 years into the church age and it's no longer all Jewish. In fact, it's less and less Jewish. The Gentiles far outrank the Jews in number. And you can almost sense him answering their question. The Jews are like, is this going to continue? Is this really what's happening? Is this what was supposed to happen all along? What's going on? Second thing he's going to address, and this is more to the point. Gave this last week. You've got to think here. The Old Testament was full of promises that the Jews, God's chosen people, would be blessed. You're like, yes, I've heard that. Especially in connection with the coming of their Messiah. You're like, yes, I've heard that. The Jews are going to be blessed when their Messiah comes. Well, here's the problem. Christianity says Jesus is the Messiah. We have all these Old Testament promises that the Jews are going to be blessed when Messiah comes. The Jews are surely not at the top of the ranks of the world right now. And so Jesus is the Messiah, right? Something's not clicking. So we come to these human conclusions. Logically speaking, one of two things must be happening. Either the promises in the Old Testament are not true. They weren't true. God said this and he's not following through. Or Jesus is not the real Messiah and the Jews are right and we Christians are wrong trying to say he is the Messiah. One of these two things has to be true. Either Jesus is not the Messiah or the promises have failed because both can't correlate. It's almost this idea. A Jew that's a Christian could almost ask Paul and saying, hold on, Paul, let's just say, if the promises are true that the Jews are going to be blessed in connection with the Messiah, and somehow, someway, it is true that Jesus really is the Messiah, but most Jews to this day for 2,000 years have rejected Jesus. I hate to put it this way. Most Jews to this day, because they reject Jesus, are not going to heaven, and they're going to hell Paul, I don't understand it, but if the promises are true and Jesus is the Messiah, then we as Christians have a lot of explaining to do. Something is not adding up. And really coming off of Romans chapter 8, 
those Jews, those thinking people could probably word it this way. Paul, didn't God make promises to the Jews that they'll be blessed when their Messiah comes and yet for 2,000 years they've rejected Jesus and if the New Testament is true, they've not gone to heaven but they've gone to hell. So then these promises in the Old Testament that the Jews are going to be blessed and that the Jews are God's special people and they're supposedly secure but it's not working out for them. So then in chapter 8 when Jeff got all excited for five weeks telling us how secure we are in the last 12 verses of chapter 8, then if the Jews are not secure, then are we really secure? And should he really got all excited like that? And Paul says, yes, it all fits together. God has not lied. And that's what Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are about. So what I need to do is I'm going to read, we're going to preach today on verses 6 through 13, but I need to back up and read verses 1 through 24, and I don't think we'll do this all the time, but because of the topic, we need to give this some special attention. Would you look at verse 1? Again, a section a lot of people just like don't want to deal with, maybe have never read. Somebody here this morning, you're going to be like, I have never heard this in all my life. Verse 1. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. We looked at this last week. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. You know what he just said? He gave four qualifiers. I'm telling the truth. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience, I'm not being flippant. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not just making this up. I've really thought about it. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I'm calling God the Son Christ, I'm calling God the Holy Spirit as my witness. Man, what are you getting ready to say? Verse 2. I have great sorrow. I have great sorrow. I said earlier, I think Paul tips his hand about how he feels towards some of the things. And here it is. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And here's the wild statement. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, accursed, And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I can't re-preach that, but literally Paul is saying, I, if I could, I can't, I can't lose my salvation, I'm secure. And even if I could go to hell for my people, it would not help them. But if it could, I literally would sign up, no take-backs, they get to go to heaven, I'll spend eternity in hell. Paul says, I would make that deal for my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Verse 4, he talks about their advantages He says, they are the Israelites. Who are you talking about, Paul? Your kinsmen. They are the Israelites. And to them belong, here's their advantages. It belongs to the adoption, the glory, the covenants. They have special agreements. The giving of the law, the worship, the temple and the tabernacle. They have the promises about the Messiah. Verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs. Far better ancestors than we have here in the United States. And I love being an American. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race. Here's the trump card of them all. Paul says, you want to talk about advantages? From their race, the Jewish race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. The Christ who is God. Whoa, that's in our face. The Christ is God overall, blessed forever. He's a Jew. Verse 6. Verse 6 is the key to the whole three chapters. Verse 6 is the key. Everything is about verse 6, the first part. Here it comes. But, so then all those advantages, Paul, everything, no, no, no. But it doesn't match. All those advantages doesn't match what's actually happening to the Jews today. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. What he's saying is it's not like the promises of God has failed. Well, it sure looks like it. How can you say that? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That's confusing. No, no, no. Not all are children of Abraham. Could I add the word just because they're his offspring? But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, unquote. Verse 8, Paul explains. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. And again, he quotes the Old Testament. 
Quote. Here's the promise. About this time, next year, I will return. God tells this to Abraham. Abraham, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah, Sarah shall have a son. I know about your attempt over there to have a son. I'm telling you, Sarah will have a son about a year from now. And not only so, not just Abraham and Sarah, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. And the Jews are going, yes, Isaac, our forefather, married Rebecca. Isaac, the son of Abraham, marries Rebecca. And she conceived. Yes, yes, we're tracking with you, Paul. Verse 11. So here she has, I'll go ahead and tell you, twins. She's carrying twins. Though, Paul says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. Notice the time. Not because of works after, not because of works before. Not because of works, but because of Him. Him who calls. She was told. Again, note the time frame. Before they're born, she's already told. Hey, Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I loved But Esau, the other twin, I hated. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul answers, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So here's his conclusion here, verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion implied. It's not depending on human will or human exertion, work. It's not human will, I will. I must do this. No, 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 you've missed it. God says in verse 15, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, oh, Pharaoh? Oh, yeah. The scripture says to Pharaoh, God says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. And could I say the idea? On you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I raised you up to show my power in you, kind of on you, so that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, Paul again concludes, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever He wills. I don't know about you. Verse 19 seems pretty obvious. So you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? God can't do that. If he did that, Pharaoh, then God can't find fault. Who can resist his will? Translation, we'll look at this another day. Isn't Pharaoh just doing what God raised him up to do? How can God find fault with him? Verse 20. Paul's answer is very confusing to me, but it's God's word. Who are you? That's to me, by the way. That's to you. Verse 20. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? That's a key phrase. Same lump. One vessel... For honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Does not the potter have that right? That's my words, verse 22. Again, blows my mind. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. 
which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Tough passage. Would you notice number one this morning, we'll find Paul defending God's promises. Paul's defending God's promises. Look again, if you would, verse number six. Paul says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Yeah, but it sure looks like it with what's happening with the Jews. Their Messiah's come and they're not receiving him. They're dying and going to hell. Looks like, the word, looks like all the promises have failed. God's a liar. This is the main point. Chapter 9, verse number 6, the first part. It is not as though the word of God has failed. He's going to spend three chapters on this. Driving this home. Why? Write it down. Paul wants his readers to know that God is honest and God is trustworthy. You can trust him when he says something. And that's where I'm going to finish today. God is honest. God is trustworthy. And so Paul answers his own his own challenge, his own argument, and he starts to make his case at the end of verse number six. He says, For not all are descended from not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You say, how, how in the world? Then it, it, it's sure. Jeff, come on, man. Either the promises are not true or Jesus is not the Messiah because it's not matching up. Here's Paul's answer, real simple. Yeah, God's promises are true. And the reason it does match up is not everybody in Israel was in the promise. The promise didn't include everybody. And that's Paul's answer. In other words, just being born as a descendant of Abraham doesn't make you in on the promise. Would you look at Acts chapter 13? I'm going to read two verses. Acts chapter 13, this has to do with the sermon that Paul is preaching in what we would call Turkey, what they called Asia Minor at the time. Can't read it all, but look at verse number 26. Paul's in a synagogue. They, hey, it's good to have these brothers. Where are you guys from? We're from Jerusalem. Oh, you have that? You were taught by Gamaliel? Wow, you really know the Old Testament, what they call the Old Testament. You know the scriptures. You want to stand and say something? And he starts standing and he's telling them about Jesus and their Messiah has come. Watch verse 26. Brothers, he's in a Jewish synagogue. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. That's Gentiles who are allowed to sit at the back of the building who are thinking about becoming Jewish. So he says, hey, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God you God fears to us has been sent the message of this salvation here it comes verse 27 for those he's in Turkey Asia Minor he's talking about those who live in Jerusalem his hometown and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets. They didn't recognize Jesus. They don't understand the words of the prophets, the predictions, which are read every Sabbath, every Saturday. They read part of the law. They read part of the Psalms. And they read part of the prophets every Saturday. Paul stands and tells them, because they didn't understand what they were reading, what did they do? They fulfilled them by condemning him. They put him to death, not just any death, on a cross. They paid 30 pieces, not 29, not 31, 30 pieces of silver, not gold, to a friend, a close friend, to betray him on down the line. Bottom line, here's what I'm telling you. Most Jews still fit the category of Paul's group that he's arguing about here that lived back in Jerusalem. To this day, most of them fit this category. They know a lot of facts about the Old Testament. Somehow they've missed the truths. They would stand here and tell us, y'all are crazy I see a lot of things in our Old Testament, but when it comes to Jesus, all I see is a man who, yeah, he was born of the tribe of Judah, and his mother has a line of descendancy to David, and the man who was his earthly father, not biological, but earthly father, he has a line of descendant, and they were up in Nazareth, and attacks came that just so happened he had to be born in Bethlehem, and then the king wants to kill him, and they run down to Egypt, and they end up coming up out of Egypt, and he goes around and he heals blind people, and he raises the dead, and he tells things about the law that no one's ever understood, and they're just going one by one but we don't see a messiah in all of that literally you could name 300 things about jesus in their bible but somehow paul says they're blinded they've missed it. it's read every week and that's why they did these things to jesus i want to propose to you that today most jews reject christianity in fact i'll tell you their attitude toward us we've hijacked their bible we just came along found their bible what we call the Old Testament, and we just make it ours. The Muslims did the same thing in 600 A.D., 
And they're like, y'all hijacked our scriptures and just kind of twisted it. And you guys doing the same thing and leaving out part and adding in part and doing what you want to with it. And so here's what they would tell us. Yeah, we're not buying your Christianity. I could give you more, but let me give you four quick reasons why the Jews reject Christianity. Number one, they oppose the whole idea that God can become flesh. They tell us, you're crazy. We have Bible. God does not have a body. He does not have a similitude. His right side does not match his left because he doesn't have a right and a left side. You guys actually think God becomes a man? That's impossible. You're blasphemous. That's what they would tell us. Another reason. If Jesus was really the Messiah, we would have recognized him. We're the Jews. It wouldn't slip through. We're looking for our Messiah. That's what they would think. They think we're crazy. Another one. This really bothers them. True Christianity says faith in Jesus just overwrites Moses' law. It's like our most important part of our scriptures, you guys say, are not the way to have this relationship with God. It's just faith in this man hanging on a cross. What are you doing with that? And then fourthly, this one really bothers them. Christianity, supposedly, I didn't put that word in your notes, but it's implied. Christianity supposedly allows Gentiles to enter the family of God without passing through the initiation of Judaism. You guys teach that, I mean, you just make it your own. You just twist it around. You you guys think you can become part of the family of God and you don't even have to become Jewish to do it. You don't have to be a God-fearer who sits in the back of the synagogue and learns the scriptures and eventually gets baptized and gets circumcised and starts keeping the offerings and the dietary laws. You guys think you just put faith in a man on a cross and you're in the family of God. Number two. Back to Romans. Not only do we find Paul defending God's promise, but we find Paul illustrating God's prerogative. Notice the word prerogative. He illustrates God's prerogative. Paul really assumes that we have a knowledge of the Old Testament. I don't have time to go into it all. Can I just say this? Watch. There's a man named Abram. Abraham. It seems random, but it's not. It's divine. God comes to Abraham. Please watch this. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Okay. I'm going to make you a great nation. And by that, you're going to have many descendants. Your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. You're going to have many descendants. Okay. And through you, the world is going to be blessed. Great. Here's the only problem. Abraham has no children. You're going to be a great nation, but he has no children. He is married to a woman named Sarah. She's barren. They don't have children because she's barren, and they're old, listen, old and getting older. So they come up with a plan. After waiting for years, by the way, Abraham's like, okay, God, I believe you. You're going to do this. And he just lives by faith. And his faith is what saved him. He believed God. God initiated. Abraham, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, 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 and this, okay? Okay. And off they go. But time's passing and it doesn't seem like anything's happening. So Sarah in particular gets this bright idea because we can't see God's plan happening. We can't see it. And by the way, it looks humanly impossible. Abe, you're old. You you call an old. Honey, you're old. Well, then you're, I know I'm old and I'm barren and I've never had kids. Why would I start having kids now? I've got a plan. We're going to help God keep his promise to us. Now watch, now if you just listen to what I just said, you should have said, What? They came up with a plan to help God keep his promises? Oh, yeah. By the way, people do it all the time. Say, really? God makes these promises instead of just believing it, receiving it, and and living life. Here's what we do. So let me get this straight. God, you say I can go to heaven just by putting my faith and trust in Jesus, and I can go to heaven. That's right. All right. Well, I'll get baptized. And I'm going to join the church and I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to give to that, what's it, Lottie what thing, and I'm going to, I'm going to give to that, and I'm going to stop saying these words, and I'm going to start doing this good stuff. I'm going to, because I just can't see how you can let me to heaven. Surely you need my help, and I'm going to tell you, it never works when people try to help God keep his promises. It never works. So here's the plan. Abraham, so here's Abraham, here's Sarah. Since it ain't working with me and it doesn't look like God's going to keep his promise, you're supposed to become a great nation. Take my handmaid, just be blunt, have sex with her, and if, you have, if you're able to have a child, it'll be your child, and then God will use that to make a great nation. And that's exactly what happened. And the result was this baby called Ishmael. But watch what Paul does. 
Look at chapter, six, uh, chapter 9, verse 6 again. It's not as though the Word of God has failed. It's not as though the Word of God has failed. And then Paul uses two illustrations. He illustrates this with two Old Testament figures. I'm going to say that verse nine, 7 and 9 go together. So if you have your Bible open, look at verse 7. Watch this. Paul's answer is, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now watch verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. She said, what happened? Man's attempt was Abraham to hook up with this Gentile concubine, Hagar. That had Ishmael. But God's plan all along was Sarah to have a child. It seemed impossible. But God says, I'm going to come back in a year. I know y'all tried and that's your version. Here's my promise. I told you I was going to do it. And by the way, when I told Abraham he's going to be a great nation, I meant through Sarah. Write this down. Paul's point is though Abraham actually ended up, by the way, does anybody know how many sons he ended up having? Ended up. It's not just two. He ends up having eight sons. Although Abraham ended up having eight sons, you say, how can the promise be true? God did not have to favor all eight sons to fulfill the promise. He just has to pick one of them. Well, no, God's a liar, right? No, he's not. He, he, he passes over seven to choose the one. Keturah's six sons and Hagar's son, Ishmael, they don't have the promise. This one line here, Sarah's son, Isaac, that's the blessed line. And by the way, you know what Paul's Jewish audience would read? They'd hear that and go, absolutely, amen. No offense. They'd say, we Jews, Isaac's line, not Ishmael and the Arab line. Isaac's line, yes, we're the favored ones. We're tracking with you, Paul. Keep preaching. Well, he does. Look at his second example. It's verse 10. And not only the Isaac-Ishmael example, verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah, so Isaac's time for Isaac. Okay, it's going to be a great nation. Well, this chosen one, chosen son of Abraham, he's, he's going to have children now. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older shall serve the younger. Catch this. The Jews would say, absolutely. Isaac over Ishmael, God's promise. Paul comes back and says, okay, okay, watch this. That's one woman's son being chosen over another woman's son, but watch God's prerogative. Let's take Isaac and Rebekah, one man, one woman. She has two children in her, two children, and Paul's going to show them how out of those. So over here, you had eight sons, and God chose 12.5%, one out of eight, and now he's going to have two sons, and God's going to put his blessing on 50% of them because it's not going to be Esau, it's going to be Isaac. And the Jews would listen to that and go, absolutely true. Esau and the Edomites are not in the promises, but Jacob, our forefather, whose name is going to become Israel. Yes, we are the chosen line, man. We're right with you. You're absolutely right. Notice what Paul is doing. He's intentionally eliminating distinctions. First, it's one woman. Yeah, not hers, but this one. Uh Uh-oh, same woman, same womb, two sons. Not that son, but this son, because it's God's prerogative. Literally, they would recognize and they would agree with Paul. Yes, God has passed over 87.5% of, Paul, of, of, of Abraham's original sons for our forefather. And then when he has children, yes, he passed over 50% of Abraham's grandchildren for our line, absolutely. But the difficult thing is Paul defends God's reputation as being honest by using those two illustrations To show them now, let's talk about Isaac's line and in Jacob's line. Watch, not everybody, even in Jacob's line, is in the promise. And so Paul is drawing the net closer and closer. More and more distinction. He literally is saying, it wasn't those seven sons, it was Isaac. It wasn't that son, it was 
Jacob. And out of Jacob, what he's going to say is, among all the descendants of Jacob, all the descendants of Israel, it's not all of them. God has the prerogative to pass over certain ones, literally, and save a remnant because, watch, there are two Israels. You're like, two Israels? Yes. One is the physical line, and one is the spiritual, eternal line that gets the blessing. Paul's saying, God's promise hasn't failed. It was never intended to include all of Abraham's kids. It was this line, and then this line of that, and among all of them, certain ones and we hear that and go I don't like that MacArthur writes this the point is that just as not all of Abraham's physical children are to inherit the promise of belonging to the people of God physically only those of Isaac so neither do all of Abraham's children through Isaac belong to the people of God spiritually so again there's a spiritual Israel within physical so there's many in the physical line but a smaller number in the spiritual line. And that brings us to the third point. Paul is not only defending God's promises and illustrating God's prerogative, but we find third this morning, he's declaring God's election. And he couldn't be more clear. Paul is declaring God's election. He does this in verse 11. Watch. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, these two sons in the womb... In order that God's purpose of election. Would y'all bear with me for a moment? I need to repeat something from five weeks ago. This is the single biggest area of my theology that I have had a reversal. I've confessed early in the message, I don't like everything I'm saying. I certainly would have done, not have done it that way. But five weeks ago, I asked you a series of questions. I'm going to ask you again. And you, you can't answer them now. You need to sit alone sometime. Here's my question. How big is your God? Really try to picture, how big do I think God is? And when you come up with that, double it. Just hit the times two button. Whoa! And then hit it again. Because you have him way too small. Second question, how in control, how powerful is your God? And sit there and think, well, I think he's... I think he's over the sparrow, and he knows the number of our hairs of our head, and he knows this, and he determines when it rains, and when it's going to snow, and what, how hot it's going to get, and how far the oceans will go. And I'm going to tell you, okay, yeah, you're just getting started. Double it. And double his control again. And keep doubling it, doubling it. I repeat. God's not American. God's not Republican. God's not Democrat. God's not politically correct. God is not human. If you miss that, you say, Jeff's just up there talking again. No, this is important. God is not human. That means he doesn't think the way I think. He doesn't think the way you think. He does not operate the way you or I would do. He's not Tennessee football. And somebody will be like, what does that mean? God does not seek fan approval. See, Tennessee football fires the coach. They're going to hire a coach named Greg Schiano, right? Everything's ready to happen. So they send out an announcement. We're going, to, we're going to hire this guy. He's going to be the next football coach. But the fan base comes out and they start, because everybody has a voice now. We also have this thing called social media, right? Here comes all the fans. We don't like that hire. So what is Tennessee football? You don't like it. Well, then we're not hiring you, dude. Our fans have just spoke and told us we're not hiring you. Listen to me. God does not do that. God doesn't say, hey, Jeff, listen, I need some counsel. How do you think it'll fly if I were to be this kind of God? Oh, Lord, uh, it may work in some parts of the world. I don't think 21st century Americans will like it. Oh, well, then I won't be that way. God doesn't do that. A few weeks ago, I shared three views of election. I'm going to hit it briefly. Here's view number one, total denial. What do you think about election? What are you doing? I don't know what you're talking about. What, what do you mean? Election, foreknowledge. I don't know what you're talking about. No, 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 really. What's your view? I don't read my Bible. I don't listen to those who go into that. I'm just, I'm not dealing with that. I don't have a view. So deny. Here's our, here's our conclusion. God offers salvation to everybody, and it's up to us to choose. That's their solution. Here's the second. Oh, yeah, I, I believe there's an election. I mean, it's obvious. Look at Ephesians 1. Look at Romans 9. Look at the other various places. Look at Acts 13. Look at Genesis 12. Obviously, yes. But here's what they say. They compromise by saying an election of God. And if you want to say what's election, selection. You understand what I'm saying, guys? Here's a thousand people. 
And there's an election of God, a selection of God. But here's this version. It's election based on foreknowledge. So what does that mean? This version believes, yes, God, quote, air quotes, elects some people because since he knows everything, he knows in advance, here it comes, he knows who's going to believe him, who's going to receive him, and so since you're going to choose me, I choose you. And that's their version of election. God knows. So since they are, then he will. And by the way, what that makes God is a little bitty God who all he can do is respond to what powerful man does. It's up to you guys. Oh, you're going to choose me? Then I'll choose you. It's weak. So Jeff, what do you think the text is saying? God foreknows, which means he foreordains. And you hear that and you say, hold on. Jeff, you just jumped. You just took liberty. You don't have the right to say that. Would you go to 1 Timothy? I'm sorry, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. I think it's in your handout. Check these references later. Watch this. Watch what your Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 18. Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed. So this price was paid to get you out of captivity. Ransom from what? The feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So you're in this sinful way of life, but you, Christian, listen, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. With what? Not with perishable things such as silver and gold. God did not buy your salvation with silver. How much gold will it take? By the way, that's some people's version. All right, I want to go to heaven. I'm getting old. I've lived for myself. All right, it's time for me. What's it going to cost? How many zeros? No, you're not bought with Perishable things such as silver and gold. What bought us? The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What bought Jeff Bartlett and made his way to go to heaven is Jesus paid the highest of prices, his life's blood, to pay for my sin. That's the price God the Father accepted. I am bought out of my slavery to sin. Watch verse 20. Talking about Christ. Here it comes. He was foreknown. He was foreknown. That's our words. Foreknowledge, election. Oh, yeah. God knew in advance what was going to happen to Jesus. Is that how you read verse 20? This is important. You need to think here. Go home and think about it. Verse 20. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. If you say that God's foreknowledge in election is just because he knows in advance who's going to believe him, who's going to receive him, thus he receives, he he puts them on his team, you choose me, I'll choose you. If that's all you do with that, then you have to do the same thing with this text because I think it's Strong's Concordance 6247 or 4267, I forget. It's the same number, watch. Here's what you'd have to say to be honest. Yeah, I guess what happened with Jesus is God knew that Jesus was going to die on a cross, but he didn't really have any control. Off you go, son. I guess they're going to get you. Nothing I can do to stop it. I tell you, if you look at the Scriptures that way, you're totally twisting the Scriptures. I believe God sovereignly had a plan. You will go. Yes, I will go. You will go and become a human being, and you will be a Jew, and they will turn on you, and you will give down your life. You will lay down your life, and we are in control of all of this. The reason we're going to blind them so that they won't even know what the Scripture says, and they're going to fulfill them one by one by one. I'm telling you this. God's foreknowledge is God's foreordination. If you don't want to do it in one sense, then you've got to do the same thing here and say that the whole cross thing was a big mistake and caught God off guard. Ephesians 1. What kind of God does the Bible describe? Ephesians 1. Verse 11, one verse. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, here's what the Bible says, according to the purpose of, what does the Bible say about God? Him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Him who works all things. Study that verse, please. I think you'll come to this conclusion. God makes his will happen to fulfill his greater purpose. It's not just God knows what's going to happen. He does. But God knows what's going to happen because God makes it happen. And I'm here to tell you, I don't understand this, what, this sentence. Everything's on schedule. You say, no, it can't be. Too many things going wrong in the world. I'm here to tell you, 
according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And I realize that makes our minds think other things. Well, then God must be the author of that. Don't add to the Scriptures. Boyce writes it this way. Election pure and simple. Quote, God in His mercy chose us. That's what Romans 9 is saying. God in His mercy chose us and then made His choice effectual. He, he chose and He made it effective. How? Two things. Number one. First, He made our salvation possible by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die for our sin. If that doesn't happen, God's doing that, by the way. God sends a Savior. Number two. Then He made us capable. He made us capable of responding to Him by sending the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth and glory of the gospel. And he concludes, Thus all the blessings we enjoy must be traced back to this sovereign, electing purpose of God toward us in Jesus Christ. Would you go back to Romans very quickly. Romans, look at verse 8. Romans 9, verse 8. Paul says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh, not just all the descendants of Abraham by flesh, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. Verse 9, this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return to Sarah. Paul's point is to defend God's veracity, God's control in salvation. Paul is defending, he's driving that home. God is the one who's in control. Look at verse 11. Actually, back up to 10. Paul's declaring God's election. Verse 10, not only so, Not just Isaac over Ishmael. But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man. Same woman here. Not two different women. One woman. Our forefather Isaac and her. Watch verse 11. Though they were not yet born. Well, I I think what happens is God knows who's going to have faith. And that's why he... No, no, no. Watch. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and hadn't done nothing either good, I know that one's going to be good and that one's going to be bad. And so I'm going to know, having done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him. I heard this, someone say this this week. Help me out. You who know the New Testament. Would love somebody. Five words, five, five letters, not five words. Watch. How would we finish this sentence? You ready? Not because of works, but because of faith. Remember that. That's what we would say. Watch what he says. Not because of works, but because of my faith, right? No, because of him who calls. It's announced. Literally, I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning. It's not just that God made a choice on Jacob over Esau. I loved him, hated him. We could go into that another day. It's not that's all that happened. Literally, God announced it. Rebecca, I'm telling you before it happens. The younger one, he's the one. The older is going to serve the younger one. I've got something special for the younger one. And you're like, surely God knows that Jacob's going to be the good one and Esau's going to be the bad one. Have y'all read your Old Testament? Was Jacob the good one? He's a heel snatcher. He literally comes out of the womb. He's a twin. What is he doing? He's coming out of the womb, showing his character, holding on to Esau. I want to be first. He's a heel snatcher, deceiver, swindler, liar, cheater. His dad wants the other son to be the blessed one. I like Esau. And God says, it's not your will, Isaac. It's my call. It's not because... I'll just tell you straight up. Esau's a better man than Jacob. Esau's a better man than Jacob. Well, morally, morally, Esau's better than Jacob. But God had a plan for Jacob. If you want to write it down, moral character does not determine election. So verse 11, I just said it a while ago. Here's how we would read it. Though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of, we would say, faith. But the Bible says because of Him. It's because of Him. Let me check my clock. 
Work with me for a moment. Jeff, is our trust in Christ important? If y'all been here through chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, you know, I believe, I know, listen, our trust in Christ is vital. No one here, listen, no one here today will go to heaven if you don't put your faith and trust in Christ. You cannot go to heaven without putting your faith and trust in Christ. It is vital, but this verse is clear that what's even more important, by the way, did you catch it? You will not go to heaven unless you believe. You must believe. You're like, Jeff, that's it. See, we have a will. We have to, I agree, you have a will. You have to put your faith and trust in Christ. But what the text is saying is even more than your faith in Christ, what's undergirding it is God's election. Literally, God elected. He chose you. That's why you chose him. His choice of you. I got saved in 1979, not because I'm good. You know why I got saved in 1979? Because God willed that I would get saved. In 1979. Can we have two scriptures very quickly? Look at John chapter 6. Look at verse 35. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, watch this, I am the bread of life, whoever comes. You see that? He's saying, come. You need to come to me. Look at the next verse. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Watch verse 37. All that the Father gives me. You see that? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But watch verse 44. So Jesus is saying, you have to come to me. I'm the bread. I'm the spiritual life. But verse 44, I'm just going to tell you, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I'll raise him up at the last day. Look at Philippians 2.12. Look at Philippians. Watch. Paul tells the Philippians, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is it my presence, but much more my absence. Watch verse 12 at the end. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean, hey, good luck, save yourself. It means when you're saved, let your salvation be worked out in your life. Let it flow through you. Look at verse 13. It is God who works in you both to will. It is God who works in you to will. You say, then why did I put my faith and trust in Christ? Watch. Why'd you just do that, Jeff? Honestly, I wasn't planning on doing that. I, I promise, I wasn't planning on doing that. I'm going to do it again. Say, so why'd you do that twice? Why'd you hit the pulpit twice? God willed it. He literally willed that I would do that. It is God who works in you both to will. How will I ever have a chance? He's going to work in your will so that you want to come to Christ and you'll actually do it to will and to work for His good pleasure. I get it. A lot of people say, Jeff, you're totally misreading the text. That's not what it's saying. Look at verse 14, Romans 9. Look at verse 14. Then why does Paul anticipate our thinking? Paul's question in verse 14 tells us we're exactly tracking with what he's saying because he anticipates. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's what we would normally conclude. He says, by no means. Paul anticipates our natural human backlash. Our logic, I'll just tell you straight up, hey, I'm with you guys. Election makes God look unfair to me. God, if you do that, and you do that, and you don't do, if you do that for them and not for them, and this ends up happening to them, and that ends up happening to them, God, you're not fair. That's where I think. Paul says, don't think that way. Why not? Just don't. It's not your right. I'm getting ready to read someone's mind. Seriously, in this room, this is you. I don't say this mean. I've been there. I'm telling you I've been there. Here's what you're thinking. But Jeff, you read the whole 24 verses, and the way you read it, I can see how you kind of, and you're selecting your little verses to kind of build your, I get it. Here it comes. But I just can't imagine a God that blank. And I will tell you, there's your problem. You're imagining a God. Instead of, I was there. I'm telling you, I wrestled with this in the, in the middle to late 1990s. But God, if this is true, I just can't imagine you in God's light. Stop imagining me in a way that is comfortable for your mind or a way that's not embarrassing for you when you talk to other people. Let me be God. You're not God. You don't get to imagine. Just let the Scripture say what it is. But God, it doesn't make you look good. God's like, I'm God. Just declare what the Word says. I've come to this conclusion we wouldn't say it this way, 
but I will. Our arrogant human American perspective operates from a default. Here's our default. You say, Jeff, I don't really believe that. Check it. If we're bucking at Romans 9, Ephesians 1, Acts 13, Genesis 12, this really is our thinking. Here it is. Our American perspective operates from a default position. God owes us mercy. God, you owe us mercy. We honestly think we can break God's laws in our character, break God's laws in our conduct, break God's laws from a, from a nature that loves what God hates. We operate that way. And watch this. Somehow in all of that as we break God's law, God, you're obliged. You have to look the other way and still let us go to heaven. You have to let all of us. By the way, catch this. That is not the Bible's default. Here's the Bible's default. This is important. If you miss this, you will miss everything. The Bible's default position is no one deserves mercy. No one. If you start there, if you start with, well, why not, why not, why not, instead of here, God, I don't know why you save anybody. That's the default. I'm almost done. We're not going to have a come forward invitation, so rest your minds. I gave this quote, and it's a strong one. Five weeks ago, I returned to it again because it's so succinct. J.I. Packer writes the following. Catch it, please. Catch this and go home and read Romans 9. Packer says we can only, so it's the default that God owes mercy. He says we can only claim from him justice. That's all we can claim. And justice for us means certain condemnation. God does not owe it to anyone to stop justice taking its course. He's not obliged to pity and pardon. If he does so, it's an act done, as we say, of his own free will. See verses 16, 17, 18. Nobody forces his hand. Packer continues. It's going to get stronger, I'm going to warn you. He says, it does not depend on man's will or effort. We literally read that in the middle of chapter 9. It does not depend on man's will or effort, but on God's mercy. Grace is free in the sense of being self-originated and of proceeding from one who was free, here's God, free not to be gracious. But what about Esau? God does not have to be gracious to Esau. He doesn't have to. I know we think he does. That's American. That's human. And the strongest sentence I've, one of the strongest I've ever heard on this but I agree. You're not going to like it. Packer concludes this quote by saying, Only when it is seen that what decides each individual's destiny is whether or not God resolves to save him from his sins. And that is a decision which God need not make in any single case. Only then can one begin to grasp the biblical view of grace. I contend a lot of people sing amazing grace. But in their heart, they think God owes amazing grace. Guys, it's not amazing if it's an obligation. It's amazing because you don't have to save anybody. So this morning, here's our conclusion. We must not pass judgment on God. We must not discard His word because we don't like it. Or it's confusing. We can't pass judgment. God, then you're not a good. You can't pass judgment on God and just discard his word because we don't understand it, because we don't like it. Again, he's God, we're not. Second conclusion. Watch. God's word's always true every time, even when it contradicts your logic. God's word's always true. If you have a promise, you say it doesn't seem like it's happening. If you have a promise from God, I'm going to tell you, it's going to happen. You can build your life on it. But the Jewish thing, it's right on schedule. There was some confusion. Paul clears it up in 19 and 11. Third conclusion. This is the one that's going to get in our face a little. When it's, it comes off of that one. God's word's always true, even when it contradicts our logic. You can trust his promise. Watch this. When we claim supposed promises from God, yes, I love that portion. It's my favorite. Watch this. 
Be certain we are accurately interpreting the passage and accurately applying the passage. Remember, what made Isaac special? About a year from now, Sarah is going to have a son. He's the chosen one. Isaac had a promise. Jacob had a promise. It's not him. It is him. Jacob. So you can't just pick and choose and pull and I'm going to make somebody really mad here. Jeff, why do you preach so long? Because exposition takes time. You don't just pick and choose. And I like that half of a verse. I'm going to build my life on it. And why is God failing? He's not keeping his word. Maybe you've twisted the scriptures. Oh, I'm going to make somebody really mad here, but that's okay. I'm going to try to be a good pastor. I'm going to let you go in literally in just a few moments. Here it comes. You ready? Be careful with daily devotionals. So what are you talking about? You're telling us not to have our daily devotions. I'm talking about the books that good people, and they give you a verse or a portion of a verse, and they pull out eight words, and they have a, it's great, and they got a paragraph and a challenge and a thing here at the end, and that's my devotions. Please be careful. You are at the mercy of that author if he's being accurate or not. If he is being accurate, you probably are not grounded in the reason why that text is important. You won't know the stuff around it. That is a B12 shot. That is not meat and vegetables. You say, Jeff, you just described, that's my devotional life. I got my, I got my Oswald Sanders. I got my Spurgeon thing. Good men. David Jeremiah. I love those guys. Chuck Swindoll. Wonderful. Chip Ingram. I love these guys. But if all you go through life is I got my little half a verse, and every day I read it, and that's my time with the Lord, you're on weak ground. And you may totally misinterpret. You say, Jeff, why do you do book by book, verse by verse? I want it to be in context. I don't want to twist Ishmael, what about Ishmael? No promises for Ishmael. Don't twist it. Heads bowed, eyes closed. We've got to be careful when we're interpreting promises. Be sure you're getting it accurately and applying it accurately. Can I give you two verses? And you check your life. Because I think these are easy to interpret. I'm going to give you two verses easy to interpret. You ready? Everyone listening. John 3.16. Pastor Jeff just said, be careful that we don't twist and misapply and misinterpret. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, ah, there's one. You say, would that include me? Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's for whoever. Romans 10, 13. Whosoever, am I in the whosoever? Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's my final message to you. Believe. But Jeff, how will I know if I'm in the, uh, listen, believe. Hear that promise. That's to you. That is to you. It includes you if you'll believe. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Say, Jeff, I'm already saved. Then Christian, never, 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 never question God's love for you. Why not? He chose you before you were born, before you had done good, before you had done evil, that day you got saved and put your faith in Christ is not because you were better than the kids sitting beside you like me when I was nine. I was no better than anybody else. Christian, don't ever question the love of God because He chose you. He loved you, but Jeff, won't He love me more if I'm good? He can't love you any more than He already does. He chose you in eternity past. He chose you. Don't ever believe the devil's lies. He chose you in spite of your past sin. He chose you in spite of the sins you have not committed yet. And if you hear that and say, then I will just go live loosely, then you're not one of his. I hear that and say, God, since you love me that way, don't ever let me break your heart again. Lord, that makes me love you. We love you because you loved us. God, 
You don't owe me. I owe you everything. You blow my mind. You are fearful. I'm afraid of you and yet I'm drawn to you and I trust you. You have all the wisdom and all the power. Yours is the kingdom and the glory. Yours is the plan. I don't know why you included some little knucklehead from North Carolina, but you did. Lord, somebody here today, please, God, this is such a confusing message and passage. Would you please, in a miraculous way, use even a message about this to draw somebody to see Christ new and gloriously like I did that Wednesday night in June. God, they have no chance until you call them. And then they will believe. So Lord, whoever here today, right now, Lord, whoever here today has never put their faith in Christ, let them rightly apply that promise. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved.